All right, if you would, please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. A few weeks ago, uh, I know we've been in and out, but a few weeks ago we began to delve back into the practicalities of the Christian life in Ephesians 4. As we've been saying throughout the semester, as you can see on the screen, we've been, we've been calling this the life of the new creation. God has graciously and radically saved us. We belong to Him today. And this new life in Christ will inevitably result in a new way of life. That's what Paul's been teaching and emphasizing. Slowly but surely, God will see that we as His children come to resemble His Son. We're becoming who we already are in Christ. And that's really been the theme of these, these last few times in Ephesians. And you know that God's designed this process to happen progressively. It doesn't happen all at once. And it happens with us fully participating in the growth process. We don't kind of sideline and, and not get involved. Um, we're fully involved. Paul's called us to put off the old self, the old humanity... And to be renewed by, by the truth in our minds and to put on the new self. And starting in chapter 4, verse 25, if you let your eyes fall down there, Paul begins to give us some practical examples of what this put-off and put-on process looks like in the church. So, just practical examples of, of this put-off, put-on process. It's the fundamentals of what should characterize our lives together as we're all progressing toward this goal of maturity in Christ. Paul has laid out for us. And the first thing he told us that we've got to get rid of is deceitful speech. Look there in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, or, or therefore put away falsehood, and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Uh, we should start speaking truthfully with each other. And if you missed that lesson, you can access it um, online a few weeks ago. And today we're going to example, examine the next example on this list, the topic of anger. Anger. When I say anger, we probably have all these images conjured up in our minds, um, experiences that we've had. But how, how do you think of yourself when it comes to anger? You struggle with it? Some of you will say, yes, I know that I do. And I'm plagued with guilt by it. I can't seem to, to get away from it. can't seem to make any headway in it. Others of you may say that you struggle with it mildly. I say something like, well, I wouldn't say I'm angry, but maybe I'm easily irritated or frustrated or, you know, I get miffed every now and again. Or others might say, you know, I may be angry, but it's totally justified based on what's happened to me. And still others of you may think that you, you don't struggle with this much at all. Well, as, as I think as we're going to see today, anger is much more pervasive in our lives than we realize. And uh, Paul's going to help us think through anger and equip us to more faithfully put it off as the people of the new creation. And, and the result is that we won't become stoic and emotionless, but, hang with me, properly angered. All right? That's, the, that's kind of the, the idea of this passage. We'll be properly angered. That is, we'll be angered about the right things, and we're going to learn to express it like Christ does, which is righteously. So where we're going today is that 
Paul's going to give us a, a cluster of, of four commands about anger. We're just calling this, this is, this is part five in our series. We're calling this righteous anger replaces sinful anger. It's the idea, the put off, put on process. Righteous anger replaces sinful anger. And in this verse, verses, 20, verses 26 and 27, there's, there's a cluster of commands here about anger. They're all interconnected. And there's really just four of them. So look in, look in verse 26. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So be angry, command number one. and Do not sin, command number two. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, command number three. And number four, give no opportunity to the devil. All imperatives there. Now this first command, so we'll put our our proposition up here, four commands about anger. This first command is a little bit puzzling uh, just initially as you look at it. So he says, be angry. And you may think, okay, what about, what about the Greek text? What does the Greek text say? Did the translation get it right? Yes, they did. They did get it right. Um, it's an imperative. It's a command. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Is Paul actually commanding us to get angry? And uh, before we get excited, all you type A uh, hot-headed personalities. Tell it like it is, people. Don't, don't get too excited yet. Uh, Paul's not justifying our anger. Our, our outbursts aren't a virtue. Um, look down in verse 31. This just kind of helps him us in here. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So there's a lot of words in here, but I just want you to catch two of them in particular. He said, let all, and then dot, 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 anger. See that word? It's the same, there's a verb here in, the, in our text, but this is the same root, root word here. Let all anger be put away from you. To get rid of it, like contaminated clothes. I won't make a coronavirus joke there. I'm going to try to hold it in. Probably shouldn't joke about these things. So this is an apparent discrepancy in our text, okay? So it looks like Paul's commanding us to be angry, and then he says, don't let any anger in your, you know, in your life. You put it all away. So this, this apparent discrepancy leads some pastors and scholars to see Paul not necessarily making a command here to be angry, but it, like a concession. It's conceding that we're sometimes angry. So one scholar puts it like this. He says, anger is to be avoided at all costs, but if for whatever reason you do get angry, then refuse to indulge such anger so that you do not sin. So in other words, he's saying avoid it. And if you can't, then deal with it, right? The only problem with this view is that it doesn't fit the grammatical form of the verb. Paul's issuing an imperative here. So what's he saying? Well, I think the best interpretation of this verse is that Paul's commending a form of anger what we might call righteous anger, or anger that's properly motivated. So we're going to flesh this out, but he's essentially saying, be angry for the right reasons. Be angry, but don't let that anger be tainted by any form of sin. That's like foreign to us, right? <laughs> As human beings. Well, let me just quick give you three reasons why I think this is the best interpretation of, of Paul's intent here. I mean, good people take a, a different view here than I do. 
Number one, I think it, it most fits the grammatical form of the verb, of the imperative here. Be angry and do not sin. Number two, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament here, Psalm 4.4. And the, that's the intent of the original uses, use of these verses in, in the psalm. There, David is commending being angry for the right reasons. He's commending being angry at slander, being angry against, against you know, slandering the innocent and idolatry. And so I think Paul's meaning here is consistent with David's meaning in Psalm 4.4, and he's bringing it into this, this New Covenant context. So that's the second reason. Number three, when you broaden out in Scripture, you do see this theme that, that anger is presented as actually an appropriate and righteous characteristic throughout Scripture. Think about it just for a minute. God's character expresses itself in righteous and appropriate anger. So it says, Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. We look to Jesus, who was righteously angry on a few occasions. It's an important observation. He's not perpetually righteously angry, just on a few occasions. It wasn't normal or habitual in his life. And even, even Paul was occasionally angered. I think of the example when he went to Athens. It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw their widespread idolatry. So this righteous anger is clearly a biblical category, and I think that's what Paul's talking about here. So our first command, we could summarize it like this. Cultivate righteous anger. Cultivate righteous anger. Now even, even saying it like that kind of, Puts you, at least it makes me a little uncomfortable, and I wrote the heading here. But um, I think that's, that's the idea here. Be angry. Paul's saying, be angry and do not sin. Paul's telling us that there are legitimate things to be angry about. Mistreatment, actual injustice, genocide, slander in the church, divisions in the church, greed and oppression, deceit at, at high levels of influence. These things ought to stir up in us righteous indignation. They ought to motivate us to take appropriate godly action. We should, another way the Bible says this, is we should love what God loves and we should hate what God hates. If you want a, a psalm on that, Psalm 119 at various points throughout, I mean, you'll, you'll just hear, I love your law and I hate wicked. I hate wickedness. I hate evildoers. Now, don't think sinful hatred. This is, this is where we have to kind of caveat this, but we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. Right now, I want us to, just to take a step back before we, we start, before we unpack what righteous anger is, and let's just think about anger itself for a moment, okay? Let's take a step back and ask this question, what is anger? Some of you say, we don't know, tell me what anger is. I, uh, I'm very familiar with it. Um, let's, let's think maybe a little more deeply than we have before. The, the late David Pallison, in his book, Good and Angry, he's a biblical counselor, he gives one of the best definitions I've, I've ever heard on what anger is. And I'll post all this stuff. I don't see people feverishly writing, so that's good. I'll, I'm, I'm going to post all this online so you can, you can have it. He says, anger is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. It's an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You notice something, you size it up, and you say, that matters, and it's not right. 
Okay? So anger is an active stance. It's not something that happens to you. It's something that you actively do. It's an active stance that you take, and that stance is to oppose something. You're, putting your, you're, you're in opposition to something that you, in your mind, through your lens, you assess. You make an assessment. There's a value judgment here. You assess, it, and, and it's two things. It's important, and it's wrong. Okay? It's not right. And then you're, you're, the anger compels you to, to speak or act. Anger has been called a moral emotion. A moral emotion. Why is that? Well, because it's your, you're making value judgments when you're angry. Make sense? You're making a value judgment when you're angry. You're, you're observing, you're assessing, and then you're giving a verdict of guilty. And it's, it's helpful to think of this as the core of what anger is. Okay? The core of anger. And, and as you see, this could be good or bad. I mean, right? I mean, it's, it's not, anger is not inherently evil. Um, it just becomes evil whenever we don't know good from evil, right, as sinful human beings, and now we're making assessments and getting angry about things. So, getting ahead of ourselves a bit. I, I just want you to see that this is, this is the core of what anger is. This assessment, this verdict that we render is guilty. And Powelson calls it uh, the evaluative core of anger. So I'll write that up there for you. The evaluative core of anger, meaning we're making evaluations um, when we're angry. And it goes, it goes like this. I identify a perceived wrong. So I'm out in my day, and there's something that happens, and, and I perceive that something is wrong. It may or may not be actually wrong, but that's how I perceive it to be. Then, after that perception, I, I take a stance of disapproval and I feel displeasure. This is what most of us associate anger with when we say anger, is that those feelings of displeasure, kind of the, the hot under the collar, you know, you start getting a little shaky, you're ready to, adrenaline starts pumping, you're ready to do something, or, or that, that's, the, that's the feelings of displeasure here. But it's coming from a stance that we're taking where we're saying we disapprove of this and now we feel displeasure as a result. And then last, number three, I, in, in some way I'm moved to action. I'm moved to action. It's really the purpose of anger is to, is to motivate us to do something, the way, way God intended it, is to do something righteously. To say, you know, we're, we're moved to action, we're, we're, we're moved to say or do something about it, even if what we're saying is only in our heads and mentally. We're, anger still has an activity, a judgment that's rendered here. So just quick illustration, all right? Your roommate leaves a pile of dirty dishes in the sink. Again. You walk in after a long day of class or work. You reach for a plate, and guess what? They're all dirty. And they're dirty from the study group, or maybe make it a little worse, the little, little friend party that, uh, that just happened. And this happens consistently. So instantly, number one, okay, think about our categories here. You're identifying a perceived wrong. This is wrong, right? That the dishes are left in the sink, again, for me to clean up. That's a wrong thing. I've been wronged in the matter. And I've been wronged for the umpteenth time. So then, number two, you actively take a stance of disapproval, and you feel displeasure, right? The level of displeasure may vary depending on the circumstances, if this is the second or seventeenth time. 
how many dishes were left, if it was premeditated and, and intentional, or if it wasn't, right? So you feel this displeasure, number two. Number three, you're moved to some type of action as a result of this. Verbal or physical. And most of the time, it's sinful. Okay? Christ wants us to learn a new way to deal with it, but most of the time it's sinful. Maybe you, you huff and you roll your eyes, you know, those sounds you make. <laughs> yeah, with the eye roll. Maybe you, you slam your books down on the kitchen table, like, you know, again, and you just you physically slam something down. Or maybe you, you even resolve to teach them a lesson, right? And you take the dishes and you put them in their bed. Don't get any ideas, okay? Or maybe you do the dishes and you pretend everything's okay. Roommate comes in, you're just doing the dishes, you know, and you're pretending everything's okay on the outside while you're actually seething on the inside. And you're nursing your justifications for being so angry with your roommate. That's still an action, right? That's still an action that you're taking, even though it's all internal. And what I want you to see, I just want you to flesh out these things. What's happening in anger, okay? The, the evaluative core that's taking place. You're making observations. You're rendering judgments. And, and we can see that anger just doesn't happen to you. It's an active stance that you take in opposition to something that you assess as both important and wrong. So if that's generally what, what anger is, what's happening, what is righteous anger then? If we're to, if we're to um, just put some shoe leather on that one. What is righteous anger? Really what Paul's commending here. Be angry and don't sin. Well, when we survey the examples of it in Scripture, this is just a snapshot. Okay, There's, This could be several lessons in itself, but just a snapshot. Here's what we find. Righteous anger has some characteristics. It's angered by actual sin. It's angered by actual sin. It's not merely a perception of wrong, not merely a preference that was violated, but there's something there's a sin that's actually taken place. God and Jesus have the clear advantage here because their spiritual vision is clear. It's not corrupted by self-interest, so they always perceive correctly. Guess what? We don't. As sinners, we fall out. We're, we're like we're all over the place. We're all out of whack. We lost the ability to distinguish good and evil at the fall. So we're constantly assessing wrongly. We're constantly calling things sin that aren't sin. We're constantly taking offense to things we don't need to be taking offense at. But righteous anger assesses rightly, and it feels appropriate indignation over actual sin. Okay, make sense? It's angered by actual sin. Number two, it focus, it's focused on God's causes, not my own. It's focused on God's causes, not my own personal agenda. This is interesting. What's kind of wild about the example of Jesus is that he wasn't righteously angry all the time. Like, there's only like three or four, maybe four occasions that he's described in the Gospels as, as being angry in a, in a perfect way. We only, see him, we only see him get angry a handful of times. He's, he has zeal for his father's temple, and so he, he brings a judgment or a cleansing on the, on the temple. 
He was angered at the Pharisees' hardness of heart when his, and, and, and also when his disciples prevented children from coming to him. That elicited righteous anger from Christ. And that's about it. At least what we're told about. But when he was personally reviled, when Christ was personally reviled, how did he respond? We didn't get angry, but he responded with patience, endurance, mercy, intercessory prayer for his enemies. So the point is righteous anger isn't focused on you know, almighty me and almighty you. It's not on our agendas. Righteous anger is focused on God's causes, God's agenda, God's glory, and we care when that's maligned and when evil's perpetrated. So it's focused on God's causes, not my own. And maybe even the most helpful, this is the most helpful to me. It, it coexists with other godly qualities. It coexists with other godly qualities. They, they run together. It's not, righteous anger is not um, opposed to love or gentleness or patience. It, it cooperates with those Godly character traits. And it's expressed in godly ways. So righteous anger is expressed in, in non-sinful ways. This is very clarifying for me when I'm thinking about righteous anger. It's still compatible with the fruit of the Spirit, with love, joy, peace, patience. It doesn't fly off the handle in its expressions. right? It's self-controlled and constructive. It's not destructive. It doesn't take vengeance. It expresses itself in edifying speech, even if it's a rebuke. Jesus' anger motivated him to cleanse the temple, a righteous action. Paul's anger motivated him to, his anger at idolatry motivated him to preach the gospel to these folks. When I'm angry and I, and I feel justified in it, it's usually at, at this point that the Lord helps me see that I'm still sinning in my expression of anger because, you know, whether it's I'm expressing it in a sinful way or whatever it is, I'm still in sin. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So when we apply these criteria, we realize very quickly that we rarely, if ever, are righteously angry. But the Lord and Paul wants us to, to begin to cultivate being provoked at what God has provoked at and being and loving what God loves. So, so, but it's, it's rare in the Christian life, even as we're maturing in Christ. So Paul quickly caveats this first command. He quickly caveats it with, with another to help us filter out the anger that's tainted by sin. Paul says, number two, we must forsake sinful anger. We must forsake sinful anger. anger. Be angry and do not sin. Paul knows how easily deceived we are to think that our anger is justified. That it's righteous and worthy anger. So he tells us almost immediately not to sin. But that, that brings up a question. Okay, so how do I know if my anger is sinful or not? How do I know if my anger is sinful or not? Well, we can use our previous categories. Just look at your perceptions. Look at your perceptions. Is what you're angry about actually sin? Or is it just something that you perceive to be wrong? We often have wrong perceptions of good and evil, so we get upset about things that we shouldn't get upset about, and we don't get angry about the things that we should get angry about. Again, because we're, we're all out of whack. But remember, Christ is renewing our minds with his truth, so there's hope there. But just first look at your perception. Next, examine your motives. Examine your motives. Ask yourself, why am I so angry? 
if you're trying to evaluate, think, am I, am I more concerned with God's glory here than my own? Right? Am I, am I more concerned with his agenda than my agenda? Most of the time, almost all the time, we're angry because we don't get what we want. Okay? It's a James 4, 1 and 2. James asks and answers that, the very question that we're asking here. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Paraphrase. Why are you sinfully angry? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, you get sinfully angry because someone or something has crossed your desires. You haven't received what you want, what you think you deserve, what you believe you're entitled to. You crave something, and when you don't get it, you get sinfully angry, and you're willing to punish the person that crossed you. So examine your motives. Why are you angry? That'll help you think through, okay, is this righteous category or sinful category? Third, consider your responses. Consider your responses. We often have sinful responses from our anger as we are provoked. Okay? And these sinful responses violate God's will. Like it's sin, right? Even if what happened to you was legitimately sinful as well. So you got slandered, right? That's a legitimate sin. But then you, that was a provocation, and you respond to that provocation with your own sin, right? That's being angry and sinning. That's not being angry and not sinning. Right? So we, we make a judgment, and now it's time to carry out justice in our responses, we think. We, we feel justified in sinful behavior because we believe we've been wrongly treated. We'll excuse away a whole host of sin because we believe that, that, we're, that we're righteous in it. So consider your responses. Your responses are a telltale sign of what's actually going on in your heart, if it's actually righteous or not. So how might, how might these responses look? Okay, just want to give you some, some just things to think through. Could look like ignoring the offender, the person who, who offended you, right? Or being chilly toward them. We don't ever do that, do we? <laughs> Facial expressions often give us away here, right? This is the Cold War approach of anger, but it's still anger. How about being irritable? Frustrated, grouchy, cranky, grumpy, testy, easily set off. Sarcasm, being snarky. Sometimes, I might tell on you, there's a proper use of sarcasm and humor. Get that. But oftentimes, don't just excuse yourself with that. Many times we're sarcastic because we're being subtly vindictive. We're, we're getting some jabs in there. Or, or we might even want to let somebody know that we're upset. It's not the way to handle that, though. Arguing, bickering, finding fault. Bitterness and resentment. If you can think of this as, as anger over the long haul, okay, so you don't deal with anger, and you get bitter. And if you are bitter, it's likely because you haven't dealt with your anger. So um, that's super helpful just to sort of know that off the top. Could be verbal, raising your voice, screaming, name calling. Could be physical, 
hitting things, venting, abusing others, and even murder. And then there's this, this whole host of other forms of vengeance that we take. We take justice in our own hands, and we try, to, we try to get our pound of flesh from people when we're angry. And that's just et cetera, right? So, so that, that leads to another question. I just want to bury you here in um, your manifestations of anger. What, what should we do if we see this? Well, Paul addresses that next. He says, we must forsake sinful anger. Oh, nope. That was my second point. He says, we must deal with anger quickly. Got to deal with anger quickly. thought that didn't sound right as I was saying it. Deal with anger quickly. That's the next point. All right? Look in the verse. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the sun go down. What does that mean? He appears to be using a Jewish metaphorical expression. The idea of the sun going down to finish out the day. So that was the end of the Jewish day. And I don't think Paul expected his readers to apply this just incredibly literally here, saying that they couldn't be angry past sunset. I think the idea here is that he's, he's saying principally we must not let anger linger very long in our hearts. We must deal with our anger quickly and appropriately. That's the principle. So what does that look like? I mean, it's, Paul just gives us, deal with your anger, right? Like, you gotta, you got to deal with it, make, make sense of it, work through it. So let's flesh this out a little bit more. What does dealing with our anger look like? First thing is just you got to acknowledge it. you got to acknowledge it. Don't ignore it. We've got to admit that we're angry. We like to ignore the fact that we're angry. We like to pretend that we're not bothered by something that's actually bothering us. Or we like to minimize our anger. We say, I'm not angry. I'm just irritated. I'm frustrated, flustered. Wherever you're at on the spectrum, and I know there's, there's varying degrees of anger, you've got to acknowledge that you are actually angry. And that's really the first step. Acknowledge it. Don't ignore it. You've got to accept responsibility for it. And you can't evade Right? Once the, once the Lord begins to bear down on the sin of anger in your life, you've got to own it. The anger is coming up from your heart. It's not coming from your circumstances. And this is probably the hardest step to actually accept responsibility for your sin in your anger. Why? Because we feel so justified you know, in it. So we like to blame things. We like to evade responsibility rather than, than taking ownership. We blame other people. I mean, you think about how we talk about anger. He made me so angry. She made me angry. And that's certainly how it feels. <laughs> Here I was minding my own business until you came along and wronged me. And now my, my equilibrium's all off. You know, I'm, I'm angry. Well, they, of course. Did they provoke you? Yes. Is that a circumstance? Yes. Is it a provocation? Yes. But is it, are they the cause of your anger? No. Are they ultimately responsible for your anger? No. You could have chosen to respond in a different way, righteously, to the provocation, but you didn't. So we've got to own our sin. We've got to confess it to the Lord, and and if necessary, confess it to the person that we've sinned against. We've got to accept responsibility. Don't evade. 
Third, we've got we to seek and show mercy. Seek and show mercy. Or forgive and seek forgiveness. Seek and show mercy. At this point, once you've, once you've owned it, you're now prepared to go to the person that you sinned against in your anger and actually seek mercy from them. Seek their forgiveness. Say those hard words, I was wrong. And even if you were the one that was originally sinned against in the first place, you can still go and, uh, and repent for your, for your sinful response. And, at the same time, not only do we seek mercy from others, but we, we want to be prepared to show mercy, right? We must also be ready to show mercy, to forgive in our own hearts. We can confront others humbly and gently without being sinfully angry in order to bring reconciliation to the relationship. And we must, if we're going to be faithful in dealing with our anger swiftly, we've got to do that. The Lord always commands us to forgive. We don't have any other options. So seek and show mercy. And then last, seek constructive solutions, not vengeance. Righteous anger is constructive in its expression. It's not vengeful. And when we forgive someone, we actually release them from our debt. That's the idea of forgiveness. They've incurred a debt when they sin against you, and we release them of our debt. This means we don't punish or we don't seek vengeance, regardless of whether they realize it or not, the offender, right? The Lord commands us not to seek revenge, but to to leave vengeance to Him, Romans 12. Often, even even after we've forgiven someone, quote-unquote, we still want our pound of flesh. Okay? We've got to be honest about that. We, we want to take it back. Even after we've said it's, it's off, it's forgiven, it's, the debt's erased, we want to get our pound of flesh back. We dole out little punishments, like the silent treatment, or being chilly, or sar- being sarcastic, or being vindictive. Some of the things that we say are how we treat the person. You've got to realize that's a contradiction. Either forgiveness hasn't happened, or you're violating the forgiveness. It's like the bank trying to go back and Take, take your payment, like get you to make, pay, make payments on a loan that they've canceled. They can't do that. We've got to put all this stuff away. Instead, we, we've got to seek constructive solutions to, to our problems, not, not vengeance. So I think those are some ways, there's probably more we could add to that, but some ways that we deal with anger, I think that Paul would affirm. And really the last thing I want to, I want to draw your attention to is, is what happens if we don't deal with anger? Okay, What happens if we don't deal with it? Well, Paul actually tells us at, at the end of this verse that, if, that we allow Satan to have influence in our lives and in our churches if we don't deal with anger. So his last command is, the way I've summarized it here, is don't allow satanic influence. Notice what he says here. And give no opportunity to the devil. It's particularly paired with that last one of not letting the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. They go together. So that means if you don't deal with your anger swiftly, you're cracking the door for an opportunity for Satan. The text here reads quite literally, don't give a place or an opportunity to to the devil. An opportunity for what? For him to exert his influence. For him to promote his counter-mission to the mission of Christ. The mission to steal, kill, and destroy. 
How many of you would actively allow Satan to have an influence over the sheep here at TBC? Probably not many of you would raise your hand, I would hope. My guess is none of you would want that. But do you realize that every time you refuse to deal quickly with your anger, you're allowing him an opportunity to influence through you? Every time you get sinfully angry in this body and refuse to deal with it, you're a sitting duck. You're advancing the satanic countermission to fracture the relationships in this body. This unity that God has created in, in Christ through the cross. You say, wow, Clay, really? Like, is that, is that really the case? That's what Paul says. Um, and I, it is that serious. So how is that the case? Well, just think about it. Someone in this church sins against you. You're hurt and you're angered, but you refuse to handle it biblically. Let's just take the most common thing. You just you internalize. You nurse that hurt, and then you become more and more justified in how you feel toward that person. Slowly but surely, you become embittered toward that person, whether you like to admit it or not. You avoid them in the church. You grow suspicious of their intentions toward you. And pretty soon, you grow suspicious of their friend group, too. Eventually, you find yourself subtly tearing them down to your friend group. You want others to join you in your low and suspicious view of these folks. And pretty soon, there's palpable division in the church and suspicion between groups within the church which will only breed more conflict and hurt. And the most tragic part of all of this is the devastation that it causes, but it's the distraction. The distraction. Our eyes are now off the mission of Christ and what he's called us to. We focused on defending ourselves from one another. So it's hard not to see, when you put it like that, it's hard not to see Satan's handiwork in unresolved anger in the church. We should, we should really protect against false teaching. I mean, I'm a pastor, right? I'm an advocate of that. We should protect against false living, too. Here, Paul says Satan can get into our church through unresolved anger. We've got to look that in the face, and we've got to let that motivate us to deal with anger. That's why Paul tells us this at the end gives us the truth to motivate us into action. His goal is a loving one, to help us see what's at stake, to be humbled, and to deal with our anger the way he desires us to deal with it. So let this first sort of resolve in your heart um, not to let satanic influence into our, into our congregation, into Timberlake, into Boundless. So as we're landing the plane here, let me just go back to our dishes example. Okay. So that happens. Last thing I want to leave you with here and kind of wrapping all this up. Where we often end, or where we often enter into in the situations of life is we enter into these circumstances and it's just the provocation is real, right? The dishes are there, you're not ready for it, you're not planned. Maybe you had a bad day before and it's just you feel the anger rising in your heart. So what do you do? In that moment, you have to renew your mind, okay? 
you've got to renew your mind. Because everything in you is going in the sinful anger direction. You don't see straight, right? Especially the more we're provoked. So, I just want to give you, I'm just going to rattle these off really quick, but six truths to remember to talk yourself off the ledge in anger, to bring, to bring the light of truth to bear in that moment, give you some clarity. Number one, I want something too much. And you don't need to write these down. I'll, I'll, I'll put, the, put them on the website. I want something too much. Even if it doesn't feel like you do, you do. I'm an idolater. That's what James 4 says. I'm angry and quarrelsome because I'm not finding my satisfaction in Christ. I think there's someone or something that's going to make me happy. So what is that? And I need to repent of that and get my focus back on Christ. I want something too much. You can know that, James 4. You can know that you're not the judge. You're not the judge, Romans 12. You're not God. When we're angry, we're, we're, we're trying to overcome evil with evil. We want revenge. We want justice on our own terms. But we're not the judge. So you can defer that to the, to the righteous judge. Number three, God has been very gracious to me. God has been very gracious to me. When you're angry, you're focused on the perceived sin of another person. But when we realize that God has shown grace to us, that's going to help us extend patience to other people. It's, it's actually power. The gospel is power to forgive. And you have to, one guy said, you have to force yourself not to think about the gospel to be angry. Um, just a very helpful way to say that. God has been very gracious to me. Number four, God is in control. He's in control of the circumstance. He's in control of the dishes that, that, that my, my friend just laid up here in the sink. He controls all of that. And he's working it all for my good. Romans 8, 28 and 29. When we're angry, we want control. But I'm not meant to be in control. We're not denying that there was a legitimate evil that was done. But God in his sovereignty works all things together for good. And that's got to be on your radar in that moment when you're tempted to be angry. Number five, this moment where your will is being crossed, where it seems like worst case scenario for you, this moment is an opportunity to grow. This moment is an opportunity to grow. James 1, consider it joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials, various trials. It's producing things in you, right? This crossroads that I come to is an opportunity for me to grow. When I know that, it's like, the, it's like I get a new, new window into what God's doing here in this moment. It's a chance for me to respond with patience, with mercy, with grace, maybe with confrontation when I'm not hot, you know, um, but regardless, whatever it is, it's an opportunity for you to grow into being like Jesus in that moment. And number six, last one. I am a new creature in Christ. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.10. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive to God now in Christ. And I have his spirit who's able to help me in this moment. I'm not who I was. I'm not dead and relegated to a life of sinful anger all the time without any other options. I've been recreated, and I have options now, right? doesn't mean you're always going to follow them, but you, you are a new creature, you have a new nature, and you can now live out of that new nature. And I think all those things, there's more, man, we can just keep, keep laying these up, but these are six things. I've, I kind of adapted this from a sermon from Jim Neuheiser. Um, I added a, another one in there, but... 
these are, these are six things I think are just absolutely essential. In that moment where the anger is boiling, and you've you got to like bring that truth to bear to renew your mind, like Paul's saying in Ephesians 4, so that we can put off sinful anger and put on, and put on restraint and all the other fruit of the Spirit. I've got some more appendices in this lesson that I'll, I'll shoot that'll be up there. You can read them, other definitions and things. Also, I just want to make one book recommendation. If this is something you struggle with, this book, Uprooting Anger, by Robert Jones, is one of the best out there on this topic. If this is a real struggle for you. And what I would encourage you to do is don't read this by yourself. Grab this and get connected with somebody that's ahead of you in the Christian life in this church. If you need help with that, I'll pair you up with somebody and work through this. Um, it's an excellent, excellent resource, but do it with someone else. All right, let's pray. Father, we're humbled. We see how frequently we're, we're angered um, in life over the smallest provocations. So we just beg you. Uh, we thank you for your mercy, and we beg you for um, renewed strength, perspective, to be overcoming this anger, um, to be putting on uh, just righteous anger, to be putting on restraint and the other fruit of the Spirit that come with that um, in our interactions with one another. Help us to deal with it. Help us to be humble and honest and to deal with these manifestations of sinful anger in our hearts and our lives. Give us victory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.